I, we are going to be starting a new series in just a moment. Uh, before we jump into that, uh, I just want to uh, take a moment and uh, just say a couple of things. Last week we wrapped up a series on prophecy, and this week uh, several of the people that I follow kind of in the realm of trying to understand Revelation and some of the end time prophecies uh, made some posts that I thought would be worth uh, talking about. And so I'm going to segue into that. Just a FYI, this TV is not set up back there, guys. It's, this is uh, on a blank screen. So, um, okay, so the, uh, the first thing I want to say is that we in uh, the United States, okay, we do not find ourselves explicitly written into end-time prophecy, right? So what does that mean about us and our role in it? I, I have no clue, right? Here's what I know is that as children of God, we are written into it. So as children of God, we know that, that our role as saints, as believers is, is one thing. But in our nation, uh, I, I want to say that I believe we have a real issue, and uh, it's something that I have been thinking about quite a bit lately and has really become more and more pronounced. So I've shared this kind of before, but when, when I was a kid, I, I grew up in church. I, I don't know how many of you grew up in church you know, properly, but we went every week, right? So we had a Sunday morning service, a Sunday night service, and a Wednesday night service, okay? So like we were at church three services a week, and then there was the responsibility that, that in each of those we were learning something different, right? So it wasn't like today's model where it was like the same message three or four times during the week. Uh, the pastor was teaching something different, but there was this, there was this um, idea uh, that maybe not so explicitly was said this way, but was birthed in my heart. And that was that there were certain things that if you did them, they were so egregious, you were going to hell. And w one of those things was, in the, it was, it was around the idea of alcohol. And so I remember being a kid at a Ruby Tuesdays. Anybody know what Ruby Tuesdays is? I haven't seen one in a while. Maybe they still exist. Um, uh, I'm sure they do somewhere. Uh, and the guy at the table next to us ordered a beer. And I remember I was like seven years old and I thought, oh my gosh, this guy's going to hell. Like it's over for him. I've never met anybody that I know for a fact it's happening to, right? Then I went to Bible college, right? And found out that was wrong. Um, that, that's not a biblical uh, worldview. But here's, here's what I'm getting at. We as a nation and as a church are guilty of not teaching self-control and moderation. The, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. But instead of talking about self-control, instead we do, as a government, we create more laws. Uh, as a church, we create more regulations and expectations and bylaws. So we have bylaws and we have laws, right? And I, I don't know if you know this or not, but the bylaws inside of the church body act as laws, as governing laws. And so if you ever go to court, those bylaws become like, you know, laws that, that you're expected to have uh, lived by. And I think that this is evident when we look at some of the conversations that we are having, right? And one of those, and I... You know, I, every time I talk about this, uh, I have somebody who's going to come up and, and not share my view on this. And I'm pretty open-handed about a lot of stuff, but 
on this, I just, you're just really going to have to lay out a biblical framework for me to chump sides on, and I I don't think you're going to be able to do that. And I only say I don't think because I would love for you to try. And that is abortion, right? If we take a look at abortion, we don't ever talk about self-control. In fact, we say the exact opposite. You aren't capable of controlling yourself. You aren't capable. And, and so the idea, right, uh, is that we're just animals and we can't control ourselves. Now, what is mind-blowing to me is that that becomes the argument, right, of certain people who are supposed to be within the church. Well, we're just animals. It's, you know, some type of primordial, like, rah, I can't control myself. Yeah, I know the Bible talks about the gifts of the Spirit being self-control, but, you know, sexuality, all that, that's exempt from it. But it's just it's not a biblical worldview, right? And then it's the same thing uh, when we're talking about the, the way the church approaches it, right? So I went to Bible college, and uh, you, you begin the, the year. And I, I don't know what it's like in a not Bible college. I did go to community college for a year, and that was silly. Um, kind of like the TV show in a lot of ways, all right? Um, but, but Bible college, you come in, you introduce yourself and why you're going to school, right? Okay, so hey, my name's... Jim, uh, I'm here to get a degree to be a pastor, and then you go around the room. And so you legitimately have, though, people in there who, when like, I'm here to be a pastor, right? And then the guy next to me is like, I'm here to meet a godly wife, right? And then the girl that gets halfway around the room is like, I'm here to meet a godly husband, right? And it's like, well, hold on, you're in college spending money to meet this godly person? And then the best thing was when guys and girls would start dating, and then they wanted to be having sex, but they also knew they couldn't until they were married, if they were going to be living biblically. They would just say, well, we're married in God's eyes, right? And that really worked out well until they broke up. And then they were like, well, that didn't really count as marriage, right? And so the problem is, is there's no conversation around self-control and moderation. Now, I am not saying that we don't need to have some guidelines in place. Like when we were raising our kids, it's foolishness to, to think that like, oh yeah, I've raised my kids really great. They're 15 years old and they'll never make a mistake, right? So we don't wanna put our children into positions where they can fail, right? And then I make the same decisions as an adult. I don't wanna put myself into positions where I'll fail. And I think that this spreads its way all the way across so many of the arguments that divide us right now politically, right? I mean, whether it's First Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, Roe v. Wade, all these things. Nobody wants to talk about self-control. Nobody wants to talk about moderation. Nobody wants to talk about living a life where we teach each other and hold each other accountable for behaving properly. Um, so, so take that, right? Now, set that to the side for a moment and think about the news cycle for a moment, right? Now, I, what I'm going to say, if you haven't heard, is not meant to bring any type of panic to, to your mind, but you should be aware there, is a, there are some really weird things that are showing up in the news cycle right now. One of those is this constant, and I haven't said anything, but it's been going on for two months now. There is a constant message being said that we are expecting food so- shortages in the fall right? And I listened to a couple of different uh, people talk about this. Uh, The bulk of our grain comes typically out of Ukraine, the world's grain. 
so they didn't plant any, any grain this year. The bulk of our fertilizer comes out of Russia, apparently, and uh, fertilizer prices are so high that American farmers are opting not to fertilize their crops, which means that we'll probably see a 40% reduction on our yield. So not only will we have a shortage coming from Ukraine, but we will also have a shortage from like right here in the United States and what we're producing. What does that mean? I, I think that also a lot of people say that, well, for Americans, it probably won't mean much, right? But for countries that are not as developed as we are, it could mean we see the types of famine and, and uh, starvation that we saw in the 70s and 80s in some, especially African nations, parts of India. Uh, these are really significant things to see uh, if we see them happening again in our lifetime. Uh, and then on top of that, we have a number of uh, conversations around different wars. Uh, of course, Ukraine and Russia are at war right now. Uh, we are consistently seeing uh, China pushing towards Taiwan. They do not accept Taiwan as a nation. Uh, now, in, in case you are not familiar, and I am not like some Chinese, Taiwanese expert, but I do know that when the Communist Party took over in China, the government of China that existed fled over to the island of Taiwan, and that is the actual original government of China that is there. They see themselves as independent, uh, and so there is constant conversation that China is going to push in and take Taiwan. But most importantly, the thing that I keep hearing right now is that uh, the number of terror attacks in Israel have escalated, that we've seen the highest in uh, a number of years taking place on, on, on Israel's proper soil. And Israel has flown a number of missions into Iran as of lately. And so people who are in Israel are making the statements that they are on the brink of war with Iran. And I think it's weird that, that these things are happening and that there is just almost no conversation being had anywhere else in the world that people in Israel believe that they will be at war with Iran pretty soon, right? So here's the thing. I don't know when Jesus is returning, and I don't know how many times we have to repeat the same cycles before Jesus returns, right? So I'm not going to tell you that prophetically we're like diving right in. This is it, boys and girls, mark your calendars. But what I am telling you is, is that there is a lot of conversation happening right now um, uh, around uh, or, or that makes, that should make us feel a little bit concerned about the state of the world at the moment. In fact, um, I, I, and I'll bring this back full circle to the self-control moderation thing. So why does that matter? Well, because on the topic of abortion, there is a, a call that has been put out for a day of violence um, that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, uh, you may not know this, but in, in Buffalo uh, just uh, two days ago or three days ago, they firebombed a pregnancy center, uh, and uh, thankfully nobody was in it. No news coverage. No news coverage. None of the mainstream media is talking about the fact that there is a call for violence, and if Roe v. Wade is overturned, which does not outlaw abortion, it puts the, the responsibility back on the states. They want violence in the streets, right? Well, who are these people, right? Well, here's what, who, they are people who need Jesus, 
right? And if you are someone who calls yourself a Christian and you are okay with that type of violence, then you are misled. And I would be happy to have a conversation around that. And if we want to use the Bible as our text, it's the only text I would use if we're going to talk about Christianity, um, then, you know, feel free to make your case. But I got to tell you, the Bible is pretty clear about what it looks like to live lives that are in self-control. And that segues us perfectly into 2 Corinthians, because this is a church that's dealing with a lot of drama. So let's stand to our feet. As we dive into 2 Corinthians, we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1, with the reading of the word, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and, the, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth will, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. I pray that as we take a look here at the beginning of this letter that Paul wrote, that we would be educated, that we would be encouraged. Lord, that we would be challenged to, to be the church the way that you call us to be the church in your mighty name. Amen. You can be seated. So, like I said just a moment ago, this is a church that is dealing with a lot of drama. And drama, doesn't, doesn't drama just kind of, the idea of drama stir up some feelings? Now, we're not talking about like a good drama on TV, right? Okay, we're talking about drama amongst people that we do life with. I, I don't know about you. I don't like drama. Uh, I, I pulled up a couple of memes I thought that helped to, uh, to add to it. That awkward moment when someone who always starts drama complains that they hate drama. You ever know those people, the drama makers, and they're like, oh my gosh, I hate drama, but they're just in the middle of it all the time, right? Or this one right here, I don't always look for drama, but when I do, I go to Facebook. I thought, man, that's, that's profound. Now, if I want to go, if I, if I want to look for drama among overly educated people, I go to Twitter, okay? But Facebook for just the average Joe. So this was written to the church in Corinth. That uh, is important that this is not a letter that is written to a group of uh, of Jews, right? Okay. This is a place that had pagan worship, pagan temples. Uh, Corinth was a, a city that had been previously destroyed a couple hundred years earlier and rebuilt. It is a central part of the Roman Empire. It is a, the capital of the region, Achaia. 
Uh, this is an artist rendition of some of the ruins that are uh, presently there in what was Corinth. Um, now, when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he does that from Macedonia. And just to give you some perspective, uh, so this, would, this, is Corinth, this is where Corinth is located in the region, Athens. Macedonia sits way up here. So, so he is not near Corinth at the time of writing this. But here's what we know. We know that he had come into Corinth, he had shared the gospel, and the gospel had transformed people's lives and the church started. All right, so Paul was responsible for the birth of the church in Corinth, okay? Now, he had shown back up at some point to, uh, to love on them, to be with them. He has since left and uh, is writing 2 Corinthians. This is taking place somewhere between 55 and 56 AD. And I'll remind you that just because it's called 2 Corinthians, is not, it is not actually the second letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, it's most likely the fourth letter. And we know that because in 1 Corinthians, he references having written them before. And in this, he references a specific letter that was written after Timothy had delivered the first one. Uh, so the, first, the, the first, first Corinthians, the first letter that we have access to was delivered by Timothy, and we covered that several months ago. You're welcome to go back online and check that out. We have little easy, solid playlists. You can go back and we go line by line. Uh, it is a very pastoral letter, right? Shepherding, loving, bringing the correction that's needed, right? So the, the shepherd brings that loving, that nurture, but also some discipline. Uh, but word has come uh, to Paul of a rebellion that is against the gospel, all right? So Paul, Macedonia, he is not in Corinth. And he has received word that there is a rebellion against the gospel. And the rebellion against the gospel is by the people who call themselves Christians and teachers within the church. It is not the outside world, right? Uh, those that would worship pagan gods that are going, oh, I don't believe in your God. I believe in my God. Or it's not among the atheists of the day who would say there is no God. Or the agnostic who would say there's a God, but we don't know who that God is. No, no, no. This is happening internally, right? That within the walls of the church, and let me point out too, when we talk about the church and we talk about it being in Corinth, we are not talking about uh, uh, Savannah, which uh, just I think 10 years ago was, uh, had the largest number of churches per capita in the United States, right? So point being, there are a lot of churches in Savannah. There was one church in Corinth. So inside of the church, there are people who call themselves believers and they are trying to manipulate, twist, and change the gospel. And so Paul has written a letter to rebuke them. He has sent it by Titus. Uh, if you look this up, many scholars refer to it as the severe letter. We do not have that letter. He references it in 2 Corinthians. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. He talks about how it grieved him to have to write it, but that he was willing to write it as a rebuke, okay? And uh, uh, the good news is 
that many within the church at Corinth have responded. So the, the tone of 2 Corinthians is not one of severity, but because word gets back to Paul from Titus, hey, many people repented. They said, you were right. This is the gospel that was presented. This is the gospel that changed our lives. And for that, we repent. We turn back to believing that gospel. Um, but Paul's opponents challenged the gospel that he had presented. And I think that we get a glimpse of this just by going back into 1 Corinthians that uh, right at the very beginning of that, uh, and that was actually almost a year ago when we started that uh, teaching in 1 Corinthians, that there's this moment in there where Paul says, you know, it has come to my attention that uh, a, a gentleman in the church has now uh, begun sleeping with his father's wife, and you guys act like that's okay and it's not okay, and you need to set that person out of the church, right, so that the enemy can sift them, right? The idea being that if we tolerate it, then they're going to be justified in their actions, and they won't really be saved. Instead, we've got to do sometimes what is hard, what is difficult, and go, hey, that's sin. It's just not okay, and so you are not going to be allowed to participate in the inner workings of the church, right? That gives them an opportunity to be removed from a place of quote-unquote tolerance into the world, and then be looking from the outside in, and hopefully they will come back to the saving knowledge of Christ. So 2 Corinthians, unlike 1 Corinthians, is a letter from the heart of an apologist. What is he going to do in 2 Corinthians? He's going to be talking about doctrine, why we believe, what we believe. And in the end, he will call for the repentant to separate from the unbelievers that are in their midst. He is going to tell them, listen, some of you have repented, some of you have not, Here's the responsibility, is that for those of you who will hold the gospel to be the gospel, you are going to need to separate from doing life among those who would call themselves believers, but do not accept the gospel that has been presented to them. Uh, and who were these unbelievers? They were unbelievers of the gospel as it was originally presented. That's what made them unbelievers. They were not unbelievers because they didn't attend the church or because they did not confess belief in God, maybe even Jesus, but instead they had their own version of the gospel presentation, the good news that Jesus came to bear our sins, right, to die on the cross, that he was, had been murdered, he was dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, and soon returning. These aspects of the gospel are things that are beyond uh, uh, natural behavior, right? And so instead of saying, well, that's part of why Jesus was God in the flesh, it is a miracle. It's not something I can do. Therefore, I need Jesus to do it. They were saying, well, if I can't do it, Jesus can't do it. And so, and if I feel this way, surely Jesus feels this way. And if I think this way, surely Jesus thinks. So they just began to make the gospel a representation of what it was that they wanted it to be. They were also unbelievers who were actively attending the church. And I got to tell you, like, in going back to uh, school and going through texts like this, it was hard for me to believe that people would attend the church and so fundamentally disagree with the gospel and yet continue to show up week after week. But now that I've pastored for a while, I don't understand why 
but I have seen the fruit of that. I have heard stories of people who have said, yeah, I know that Pastor Jim believes the Bible and Pastor Jim teaches this. I don't believe that. I reject it. I'm going to keep going and I'm going to change things there, right? Now, listen, I, I, I want to reiterate. I've said this a couple times today. Like if you have a biblical argument, you want to sit down and have a conversation around, I'm open to that because just like when I was seven years old, I didn't have it all figured out. Right now at the ripe old age of 43, I don't have it all figured out. In fact, I couldn't even remember in the moment that the, the Jesuses are going to the Dominican Republic. I sent them to Honduras. Okay, so I'm going to make mistakes, all right? A couple of weeks ago, I had this amazing analogy for you guys uh, on, on how that uh, 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 the song Joy to the World, right? That Joy to the World is not a Christmas song, right? But it's actually a song about the millennial reign. So I asked Michael, I said, hey, tag that in. I'm going to talk about it. We're talking about the millennial reign. And I didn't. And for weeks, Michael has been prodding me going, are you just going to let me look like a crazy guy out there? And I kind of was tempted to do it, uh, you know, but I, I'm forgetful. Sometimes I'm disorganized. But can I tell you, there is nothing I want more than to just get it right when it comes to the scripture. I don't want it to mean what I want it to mean, right? I want my life to conform and shape to what God's expectations are. All right. So, Paul believed that the gospel was presented as is. There's no room for changing the gospel. Uh, he even, man, he, he makes this statement that's pretty profound. He says, you know, even if an angel, right, were to come to you and to offer some other type of gospel, right, it would not be from God. That's forewarning. And then hundreds of years later, right, we have a whole nother religion that is birthed, Islam, from an encounter with an angel that presents a different gospel. And then hundreds and hundreds of years later, another man claims to have had an encounter with uh, angels, and Mormonism is birthed, right? So Paul, man, he knows the, the very heart and attitude of humanity uh, that, that either through manipulation, it would be easy to claim, well, an angel told me this, right? Or maybe some type of spiritual being would present itself. Either way, it does not change the gospel. If there's any gospel that's presented other than the gospel that they have presented, it is not from God. Now, in the midst of this heartache, there's a real problem going on. Jerusalem is in a season of severe famine. And so Paul has kind of paused some of his uh, church planting uh, responsibilities, and he is now going to all the churches that he has planted. This is part of what it looks like to be an apostle, and he is actually taking up a donation so that they can get resources to other believers in Jerusalem right now that do not have food to eat. And I, I just want to reiterate something, that giving to the local church is part of the faith. But guys, I got to tell you, this week, I was talking with somebody who used to co go to City Church, and uh, they, uh, in the military, they've been moved to Washington. Now they're in Oklahoma. And so he calls me up, and he's like, hey, are there, do you know of any, you know, Bible-teaching churches in this area? And of course, I, you know, I wish I knew of a good Bible-teaching church in every city in America, but I don't, um, mainly because I can't remember the names of all the cities in America. Uh, but we were talking, and he was talking about a number of churches that he went to. 
And so he was talking about something and all the different teachings, right? So he's like, we're in this one church and they're talking about gender and sexuality this way. And then we're in this church and they're talking about, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you, you, uh, they're talking about abortion this way, you know, all these different things, right? Um, he says, and, but they always follow the same model, right? The pastor comes out and the first thing he does is he gives a little spill on tithes and offering. And man, my mind just like hit the floor and I thought, oh my gosh, we will manipulate every doctrine inside of scripture except for giving, right? A pastor, uh, th- some of these pastors are not going to give up on bringing some type of guilt to you about how much money you're giving, right? Like we can talk about any way you want to live as long as you're giving money, right? Okay. I got to tell you something. Giving, it's biblical, right? If you're a Christian, you should be invested in the local church. You should be invested in ministries financially, right? But I am not going to make that the primary part of the text when the, when the majority of the text is really trying to get us to live like him getting us to pursue righteousness. Now, the reality is when you come to that place where you are saved, where you are a believer, you're going to have to come to grips with the fact that you are called to invest in what the local church is doing. So, let's go in here. We're just covering eight verses today. We'll begin with verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So, who's he talk, who, what does he do here? The very first thing he does is he begins by presenting who he is, Paul. This is significant, uh, not because he is pious and, you know, wanting to make sure everybody knows that it's me, and you need to know that up front. No, they are actually writing these on scrolls, okay? And so the letters being written on scrolls, if I'm going to read it, what I'm going to do is I'm going to open it and begin to read it and roll the top as I unroll the bottom versus trying to get that whole thing out. You ever tried to unroll a, uh, a banner or something like that on the ground. It just wants to curl all back up on you and you can't get it to lay straight, right? It's the same concept. So if you were going to say who the letter was from at the very end of it, right, then they get this letter and it's rebuking them really hard. And they're like, I have no idea who wrote this, but man, they are angry. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, I got to keep going so I can get to the end. No, it starts because he wants to present some authority. This is typical writing at the time because it is on scrolls. The second thing here, he says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What is he doing? He declares by whose authority he speaks. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Paul and I'm, sitting by the, I'm sent by the magistrate or the governor, or, or even by Caesar. No, he, he tells you that it is by the will of God that he is an apostle. And then it, who is it to? To the church of God that is at Corinth. He declares to who he's writing so that if this scroll ends up being snatched up by somebody else and they're looking at it, they'll know Paul is addressing the church at Corinth. Why would that matter? Well, here's what we know, and the New Testament addresses this. There were scrolls, that, letters that were being sent out that were forgeries that were not actually from the apostles. So people were trying to push their own uh, ideas into the church or manipulations or lies, whatever it is. They were creating fake documents and sending them out. So that's a problem, right? 
if he did not address who the letter was to, right, somebody could take that letter and then take it to a different church and go, hey, you know, Paul's really mad at you because of this, and it may not be applicable. Uh, so he addresses who it is that he's writing to, and then he says here, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, uh, he is reminding them they are not alone. Why does that matter? Well, this is why it matters, is that when a church has this epiphany for why it is that the gospel's been presented wrong all these years and why we're so much smarter than thousands of years of church history and we're actually loved a little bit more because God has given us a revelation that He just doesn't give to the other churches, right? That they are to be reminded that they are all saints, right? And this is why I say this all the time, that I have more in common with a Syrian refugee that loves Jesus than I do with a doctor down the street that denies his existence, right? Those are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are the saints. And so Paul is telling them, he says, look, I'm writing this letter. I come by the authority of God. Uh, I am an apostle. I have done the hard work, right? I'm writing to the church in Corinth and you are not alone. There are children of God all over the area where you are at. It is important for you to know that the gospel is being presented and lives are being changed. And what gospel is that that's being presented? It is the gospel that I presented to you. It's not this new gospel that you're making up right there in your own four walls. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to take a look at these real quick. He says, grace to you. Grace is kindness or favor, okay? So he says kindness, favor, and then he says peace. Peace is quietness, rest. What, what, why is this significant? Because these are manifest ways to know God is with them. So he's not just saying like, hey, I really hope that, you know, the whole God thing's working out. No, he's praying that God will make himself manifest in their presence, make himself manifest in their lives. Now, I want to take a moment as we move into the, the remainder of the text for the day, and I want to talk about this word comfort, because we're going to see this over and over and over. Uh, got a good cat meme here for you. Comfort is an art form, right? Uh, I have preached the majority of my uh, Christian ministry against cats uh, and uh, why they are not loved by God. And now I own three cats and I was wrong. Um, I got to tell you, cats are, they are, they are selfish. Yes. They are arrogant. Yes. But they can also be very sweet and they can get themselves into some of the weirdest, cutest positions. And I realized a couple of weeks ago, I'm the cat man. My, I looked at my photos on my phone and I realized I'm taking more pictures of cats than I am my kids. I repented. I just want you to know, right? So comfort is an art form. Uh, but this is the idea of being comfortable. It's a state of mind, a position. The comfort we're going to be talking about is not from that of a noun, but from a verb. And look at this. It says, according to Google, it is to ease the grief or distress of or to console. So I think a lot of times when we think of comforting somebody right? We think in terms of bringing them to a place where they are comfortable. So we think of comfort in the sense of a verb as moving somebody into the position of comfort noun, right? But what was interesting to me is that when we actually go and look at this in the Greek, 
that it is to invite or to draw near. Notice that it doesn't, the, the Greek understanding of comforting was not about bringing ease to the person, removing their difficult situation. That's pretty profound when we look at the next uh, few verses here. We'll begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, right? God of being with us, being present, who comforts us. He's with us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. It's not about taking away the pain, removing the ease. It's a, the Greek understanding would have been that being present in the midst of their hurt with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Right? So, what is, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, as we walk through the types of sufferings that Christ walked through, right? Right? So, through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too, not being alone. Verse 6 If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And so, what is Paul, he's beginning this letter with this idea, like, here's who I am. I want God to be made manifest in your presence, in your lives, where you're at. Now, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that, that our prayer is that we can be present in your sufferings as Christ is present in our sufferings and as we need to be present in Christ's sufferings and that we are not alone in the difficult times. So comfort is an invitation to walk through pain or distress with God by our sides. This picture of comfort is not to have the pain removed. It is about God being present in the midst of it. I've shared this before, but I'll, I'll share it again. I was very close to uh, my granny, my grandmother, uh, and when she passed away, uh, it was very difficult. It was, uh, I, I grieved a lot. It was very shocking to me um, the way that I grieved because I just ha have just have not ever experienced those types of emotions. But I became very aware of the fact that it was okay to grieve. It was okay to walk through it. I did, not, I, I, I did not take on this idea that I've got to do whatever I can to get rid of the pain, right? I felt like it's okay to walk through the pain. So I did not want to numb it with alcohol or some type of drugs. What I wanted to do was figure out how I could walk through that. And I remember vividly one time, I was sitting in the backyard several weeks later, and we had a hammock, and uh, we were out there, and I just started crying, and Carmen and the kids were out there, and Carmen told the kids to go inside, and I said, no, 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 no. they don't have to go inside, right? It, it, this is normal. This is natural. But we, man, we lose our minds when we go through difficult stuff, and, 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 and we want to do whatever we can to get rid of the pain. 
And Paul says, man, there's a lot of suffering that's going to come with being a believer. And so my prayer is that the comfort you experience is having God made manifest and present with you. Not that he's there going, oh, let me just take away the pain from you. No, you've got to learn how to walk through it. You see, without a proper view of the gospel, we see suffering as compounding our own misery, right? And I think of the Muppets um, when I think of people who operate like this. And uh, I joke with uh, Carmen all the time that we have raised up a generation of beakers. Um, And in case you are unaware, beaker only knows one word, me. Me, 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 me. How are you doing today? Me, 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 right? Now, I don't necessarily think that that's what they intended because they spell me, M-E-E, but man, I think it's really good when we think about a generation of people who always think about themselves. That's the only word they know. Me, 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 me. And what does Paul say? Well, Paul saw his suffering as equipping him to help others. All right, I can walk through this because I will be a better leader on the other side. So what type of suffering did Paul walk through with Christ by his side? This is where I'm going to end today, kind of jumping into next week. But listen to what he says. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. What type of affliction? For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He says, man, God's with me in the midst of my suffering, and sometimes my suffering can get me to a place where I don't even know if I want to keep living. It's a difficult place to be in. And i got to tell you that Christianity is not a faith to justify who you are and what you want to do. Christianity is about a God who created us and knows what's best. And even when it's difficult, He's faithful to be there with us while we walk through difficult seasons. And so I think that Paul's big opening to this is that sometimes you walk through really difficult seasons and what you want is for somebody to justify it. What you want is for somebody to come and tell you, it's going to be okay, it doesn't matter, to remove the pain. And that is the type of teaching that they had been receiving there in Corinth. And instead of looking at brothers and sisters who were living in sin and going, hey, that's sin, we don't live that way, they didn't want to be the ones that created the pain by saying that. So instead, they created their own gospel. And Paul says this doesn't work because there will be seasons in life that you'll walk through that will be really difficult. Let's stand to our feet as we close. So the, 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 the call of this book is going to be one of how important it is that we understand what we believe, why we believe what we believe. And then kind of getting that anchor in place and being very slow, right, to uh, make changes to what it is that we believe about the gospel, not just believing every compelling communicator. That was a big problem for Paul. Apparently, whatever had happened in Paul's life, he was not as good a communicator as some of the other people around him. So some people argue because he was incredibly well-educated that he had suffered some type of ailment. Uh, Something was physically uh, creating a problem. We've talked about that before in his life. 
But at the end of the day, there were flashier people, right, uh, that were coming out that uh, they looked hipper, they talked with the new slang, they had the right thing to say, and everybody was like, oh, man, I just love what that guy has to say, right? And Paul's argument is not against them. He's only arguing that when the message perverts the gospel, it's got to be, you got to say no. It doesn't matter how good it sounds. It's against the gospel. And the gospel is, man, it's rock. It's, it's, it's foundation for us in our lives. We need the gospel. Amen? Amen? Amen. I want to pray for you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. I pray that as we are going through this letter, that we would uh, not only be encouraged, but that this would be revelation. Lord, that we would take the time and get serious about maybe even formulating in our own lives, why we believe some of the things that we believe. And I pray that those beliefs would, uh, would go beyond our own capacities, our own rationale, uh, our own uh, limited understandings, but that they would be beliefs that are based in trusting that you know better than we do. Um, we thank you for who you are and what you do in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be able to uh, to be able to walk through difficult seasons, to be able to reflect your love and mercy and grace in the midst of those moments, to bring glory to your name. We love you and praise you in your mighty name. Amen. Listen, before you leave, if you need prayer, prayer ministry team is in the back. They want to pray with you if you're sick in body, if you're going through something difficult. The scripture says, go uh, to the leaders of the church. Allow them to pray with you. That's a biblical model that we have. Uh, we love you guys. We'll be uh, continuing into 2 Corinthians in two weeks because next week is Father's Day, and we're going to be talking about what it means to be a dad, uh, to be a leader. So I hope that you'll be here with us. We have a bacon bar, a bacon bar. You got that? If you don't know what a bacon bar is, come ready to eat bacon. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. As always, go change your world.
Jesus.